All right, let's turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 6 this morning. The New Testament says, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And to transgress means to overstep a boundary, in this case, the law of God. But sin actually is lawlessness, having no boundaries, living according to the way you want to live, making your own rules. And in the book of Genesis, our human parents overstepped the boundary of God's only directive, thinking they were choosing what was good by being able to experience what was evil. The first child they brought into the world became the first murderer, overstepping the boundary of taking human life, which was made in the image of God. And from that time forward, human rebellion began to increase in the world until the 10th generation, which was the days of Noah. Two distinct lines are presented to us in this framework. The ungodly line of Cain, culminating in Lamech, who bragged to his wives about taking another man's life and how willing he was to be avenged of those who would harm him. But also what we call the godly line of Seth, which is traced from Adam to Noah in chapter 5. We looked at that last time. Unfortunately, even this line did not prevail over humanity because by the time of Noah's 500th year, God determined that the human race was so far gone that he must wipe it out and start all over again. And what happened in that time is described in just eight verses in chapter 6, the first four of which are among the most difficult to interpret in the whole Bible. Uh, But we must not get bogged down in the minutia of detail. We have to expose the underlying meaning, the truth that is here. No matter what interpretation you may take of those verses, the outcome is that human rebellion leads to divine retribution. We find in this passage the willful overstepping of God's boundaries, even though the law has not yet come to play. Boundaries such as God's will for marriage relationships. One man for one woman to live in mutual love and respect for God and for each other. That God accepts sacrifice and assesses the attitude behind that sacrifice. The folly of taking human life in pride or vengeance. And that men should call upon God in faith and uh, for help and guidance in life. And rebellion against these boundaries leads to more depravity and eventually the judgment of God. One bright spot is verse 8. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And only standing in God's grace through faith can we be delivered from our own depravity and the consequent retribution of God. So let's ask his guidance as we wade through this passage this morning. 
Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful today for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the the coming one promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, who defeats the foe Satan and frees us from our sin. We're thankful, Lord, that he took our sin upon him so that we do not have to pay the price of eternal damnation. We pray, Lord, as we look at how we got to the place we are today, you would help us to uh, spread the gospel news wherever we go and help us, Lord, to be like Enoch and like Noah, who are men who walked with you. Bless your word to our hearts, we ask today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first four verses here expound or explain to us that rebellion against God's boundaries is indicative of human depravity or uh, sinfulness. So let's take a look here at the issues, the problems that come up uh, for us in the first few verses of chapter 6. Now, there are many difficulties for the expositor to deal with here, and we don't really have a lot of help from other scripture uh, to give us an explanation. Uh, For instance, who are the daughters of men that are spoken of here? Who are the sons of God? Who are the giants or the Nephilim, the mighty ones, the men of renown? What is meant by my spirit shall not strive? And the 120 years mentioned in verse 3. Pastors and theologians and expositors for years have not been able to come uh, in full agreement of any of these. So we cannot be dogmatic. So this morning I'm going to give to you a brief explanation of three main views, and then we're just going to go to the central truth of all of this. So we we see here uh, the mentioning of sons of God, daughters of men, and uh, then we have the, the, the giants that were on the earth in those days, mighty men, things of that nature. So let's, let's suggest uh, some explanations. First of all, there are those who believe that the sons of God were human rulers that became powerful despots. Now, of course, uh, you lived seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years in that time, so you had plenty of time to become a powerful person. Uh, the Hebrew term Elohim, which is uh, gods in this passage, sons of gods, uh, uh, that can refer uh, in the Old Testament to many things. Elohim is the name of God. So when you see God alone, that usually is the term Elohim, a mighty one. But also can be used of false gods. We see that translation very often. When you see gods, plural, little g, that's, that's the same term. But we know from the context it's not talking about uh, our God. It also can uh, relate to angels. And even is used sometimes of human rulers and human judges uh, who are gods in the sense that they, they give uh, determinations. Now, in this view... This latter group are in mind. They looked upon the daughters of mankind and took whoever they chose to satisfy their own lust and build a dynasty of power in their own name. 
And in order to do this, it's likely they took more than one wife. They took many wives so that they could build up uh, their dynasty through their offspring. And uh, some believe that they were even demon-possessed. So supernatural powers aided them in this quest of domination. And so they and their offspring became the Nephilim, the men of violence and power and fame. Then many expositors, uh, especially the older ones, hold that the sons of God represent the godly line of Seth, that is recorded in chapter 5, and that the daughters of men are the ungodly line of Cain. And the sons of God, the line of Seth, looked upon the the worldly women, and they desired them, and intermarriages between them developed. And so over time, uh, the whole uh, race of man was polluted by the ungodly line, and ultimately uh, depravity ruled the race. The problem there is that sons of God is never used of men in the Old Testament. And the daughters of men cannot be confined just to the line of Cain, uh, because the, the, the word men there uh, in verse uh, uh, One in verse two is the generic term that means mankind or humanity. So daughters were being born as well as sons to humanity. And if we check out chapter five once again, we see that they had sons and they had daughters. So we can't really confine the daughter aspect to the line of Cain. Daughters aren't mentioned at all in that line of Cain. So generally speaking, it's It's all humanity that brought forth women, daughters, and there was this marriage uh, between the sons of God and the daughters of men. The third view is that these sons of God are actually fallen angelic beings. And the only other mention of sons of God in the Old Testament is found in the book of Job three times, and every time it's in reference to to angelic beings. Now, in this view, a group of fallen angels left their supernatural abode and they pursued their lust toward human women. Their ultimate plan is to exacerbate and accelerate the movement of human society away from God under the power of Satan. And I don't believe that they... Uh, literally married the women, I believe what they did was demonize ungodly men who were similar in character to Lamech, and uh, they satisfied their lust in that way. And uh, as a result, that that uh, uh, controlled these men who became the Nephilim, the giants, the great men, the mighty men in an evil sense in that time, in that age. And uh, this, is, this was supported by early Jewish expositors, the early church. And there are some New Testament scriptures we're not going to go into that also would, would possibly relate to this group of angels who re- left their original estate and were judged and consigned to chains and Tartarus until the Lord returns. So I'm more inclined to this view, but I'm not uh, dogmatic 
And all of them have difficulties. We could, we could pick pieces apart of all of them. What about then these, uh, these people in, in verse uh, 4? <clears throat> and here again we have problems and issues, but it says there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. <clears throat> All right. Um, the word giants here in our English translation is in the Hebrew nephilim. And so it's a transliteration. And we kind of want to keep to that idea because giants is questionable. That's a translation from the Septuagint. Uh, gigantes, which refers to men of huge stature. And it seems that these Nephilim, as you read through there, may have been the product of these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. But the text is a little bit ambiguous. It doesn't really uh, exactly state that. What it indicates is that during the time the sons of God were taking these daughters of men, that this group of people existed, and they were famous and powerful in a bad sense. It also indicates that they existed after this time, which may suggest uh, beyond the time of the flood. Now, the only other time we find this word in the whole Bible is in the book of Numbers, where the Israelite spies feared to enter the land of Canaan because they saw the sons of Anak, the Nephilim, translated giants, people of great stature, and they were afraid of them. But they could not be from this same group of people because the Lord destroyed the world with a flood. They couldn't have come from that group of people. Um, they, they had to be like those people, though, in some way. And it could be that from the sons of, of, of Noah that the, the genes could be moved in a direction where there were a race of men who were very strong and tall and powerful. I mean, even today, we have some men that are seven and a half feet tall. So it could be uh, that when they were referencing that, they were thinking, these men are of huge stature, they're powerful, they're fierce, they're like the Nephilim before the flood. And that may be what they were conveying here. Now, these people, who may have been the result of previously described marriages, became fearsome and mighty warriors of the day. They were even more degraded than Lamech if they were demonized, if they were, if they were um, controlled by demons. We can understand how they would just uh, be feared and famous in a negative way among people of that day. And, and the root word uh, of Nephilim means to fall. Now, some take that. Well, this refers to fallen angels that, that uh, entered the world. Uh, it also could mean that these were type of people that fell on others, in other words, to harm and control them. And so the idea of fallenness comes in there as well. And they became mighty heroes with violent warlike qualities whose purpose was to forcefully rule over others, to control others and build their, their own dynasty. Um, and, and even perhaps 
seeking to be divine creatures or superhuman creatures through these satanic powers that were prevalent. Now, in modern times, uh, they, you know, they would be similar to, to Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini and Mao Zedong and uh, Idi Amin and Osama bin Laden, people like this who desire to destroy, who desire to have power over others and to rule, but in a very bad way. Now, let's consider then the outcome here. No matter which view we may take, we ultimately find that rebellion against God's boundaries is what's involved here. One uh, author wrote, more important than the detail of this episode is this indication that man is beyond self-help, whether the Sethites have betrayed their calling or demonic powers have gained a stranglehold. The end result is the, the complete depravity of humanity. Now, there's something I want to do here, I want to show you. I want you to note the similarity between what happens here in Genesis 6 and what happened in the Garden of Eden. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, when Eve is being uh, tempted by the Satan serpent, look, look what she does. Verse 7, or verse 6 rather. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, it was pleasant, it was desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit, and eight. Now compare that with chapter 6 and what happened here. <clears throat> Look at verse 2. Okay, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. What did they see? They were good, attractive, beautiful, desirable. And then they took wives for themselves of all they chose. Same progression. You see something, it looks good and beautiful to you, and you want to take it. It's covetousness. And that's what the underlying theme is here, that these sons of God, whoever they were, looked upon the daughters of men, they wanted them for themselves, they wanted to have power over the women, and through the women they would have offspring, and they would they would ha they would have their own uh, uh, army over time that they would be ruling, and they would then overpower others and bring others into into their uh, circle of power, and all of it was selfish, overstepping the boundaries of God, uh, not looking upon a woman to to have a help meet. And, and to be someone that you share your life with, but to use for your own ends. So the degrading of women, the degrading of the concept of marriage, all to make uh, yourself powerful and to make your own little kingdom. And maybe they had ideas of taking over the whole world. Men have those ideas to rule the whole world. And if the devil comes in the picture and uh, uh, these men are being demonized and controlled by the devil, it exacerbates the situation and it becomes even worse. And so in the whole uh, sketch of things here, perhaps this is all designed to prevent 
the coming of that one who will defeat the devil back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. If we can wipe out the whole human race and make them all depraved, then, then one can't come and defeat the works of the devil. So the Lord, uh, these people are, are filled with their, their desires, their lusts, their strength, their power. And the rebellion against the Lord's boundaries indicates the depravity of, of, of the human nature, of humanity. And we may think that this only came from the line of Cain, but evidently it wasn't. Even the line of Seth was born in the sinful image of Adam. Each one of them had to make choices to call upon God, to walk with him, to follow his ways. They began to do so. They started out right in the days of Adam and Seth and Enosh. They called upon the Lord. They worshiped the Lord. But by the days of Noah, how many are left? One family. One family. By the time of the flood, all those patriarchs named in chapter 5 have passed off the scene. I believe Methuselah died in the year of the flood and there's nobody left but Adam and his sons and their wives. And then you think about it. When uh, Adam uh, is mentioned here, he has sons. Do you suppose Adam had brothers and sisters? Yes, his father bore sons and daughters. He had nieces, nephews, he had cousins, aunts and uncles, and none of them come through the flood. Okay? So Noah is the only one left. Apparently they all went the way of Cain. They all went the way of the Nephilim, the way of lust, uh, desiring power and recognition and perhaps even seeking divinity. All of them must have perished in the flood. Now, what does God see? What, how does he assess the situation? What is his response to all of this? Well, we see that human rebellion ends in divine retribution. It has to. And I want you to note here what, what God is observing. In verse 5, first of all, then the Lord saw. See, the Lord sees as well. So the Lord's observation of the human rebellion is in verse 5 here. The Lord saw what was going on. The Lord saw how drastically how diff- uh, the world had changed from the day of its creation. When God saw the things that he created, his declaration was these things were good, they were, they were wonderful, they were perfect. Now what does the Lord see? He sees a world that is ugly and corrupt. And folks, don't ever think that God does not see what's going on in the world today because he does. He knows everything that's happening. And we may complain because he doesn't seem to control evil. And he doesn't rule the world the way we want him to and zap people right now. But he does uh, not absolutely control people. He allows them to make choices. And because of our nature, those choices aren't going to be good ones, are they? Not unless we follow the Lord. 
But we still think like Adam and Eve did, that we have the ability to choose good over evil. But we don't. We're like that generation before the flood who consistently chose what they wanted, not what God wanted. And today men see, men covet, men want, and men take whatever they want or whatever they're able to take. And the Lord sees, the Lord assesses, and the Lord judges. Now, what did the Lord see? Well, we're told here that he saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. Man's wickedness prevailed on the earth. The godly seed that had become nearly extinct, the good had not overcome the evil, Evil overcame the good. Man was corrupt to the innermost being. And even the intentions, the plans that he made, the thoughts that were in his his head were always evil and selfish and covetous. All of his plans, all of his intentions, selfish, sinful, degraded. And this seems to indicate that things were so bad People could not even entertain the thought of God. There are people like that today too, aren't there? They don't ever think about God. Then we see how this affected the Lord in verse 6. We see the Lord's emotion over human rebellion. We're told the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. He was sorry, he was sorrowful, he was pained that he had made man. And the word conveys emotional pain, inward pain, sorrow, often over something that occurred in the past. Now you and I as sinful creatures know what that's all about. You ever think about something you did in the past and you wish you never had done it? And the devil brings it up every once in a while. And every time uh, he does, you're remorseful, you're sorrowful, you wish it had never happened. Well, in a sense, that's what God was feeling. But he wasn't sorry that he, he, he created me. And he, he was sorry that things ended up this way. And it's hard for us to comprehend why God would create man if he knew that he would rebel and caused him such deep anguish. Why did he just why did he do it in, in the first place? Well, I guess he, he thought it was worth it. He thought it was worth going through the pain and the sorrow. And he devised a plan that would redeem many, many millions, and they would have eternal fellowship with him. And again, we can't comprehend the mind of God, can we? Well, it goes on to say that he was grieved in his heart. Now that verb also conveys anguish and inner inner turmoil, but it includes a sense of offense which results in justified anger. We often want to strike out at someone when they, they hurt us, physically or emotionally, And our anger is aroused when we're mistreated. 
And it's not always wrong to feel that way. Depends on what you do with it. But uh, a human sin does not just wound God emotionally. It calls forth his just judgment upon it. The Lord is anguished over it, but he can't just let it go. He can't just feel sorry. He has to do something about sin, especially when sin gets to this point. And he's not happy. He's not pleased with our sin. He's grieved by it. You know that, that your sin caused God grief. And God has to judge that sin. He has to react to it with retribution. He's long-suffering. He's patient. But one day, he will have to break out in just judgment. And that leads to verse 7. The Lord's condemnation of human rebellion. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. So all the rest of the kingdom of earth has to pay the price of man's sin as well. And retribution has to fall upon unrepentant rebellion. Now we've observed the reign of death in chapter 5 over 10 generations. God blessed those people with great age, long life, but in the end everyone died because of sin and the ways of sin is death. Now the whole world has become so corrupt before God that he's got to start all over again. He's got to wipe it clean. That's the idea of the word destroy there. Uh, Like you wipe a plate clean and there's nothing left. And back in verse 3, I've been saving this. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Now that seems to indicate the Lord's not going to contend with this condition in man forever. It's not going to be a perpetual rebellion. He's got to deal with it. And this indicates that a day is coming when he will remove the life-giving spirit from humanity in judgment. So it's probably a, a precursor of what's going to happen down the road. And folks, this is a reminder of another judgment that's coming. Prior to a future day of judgment, the world's going to become just as corrupt as it was in the days of Noah. Jesus even prophesied what was going to happen in Matthew 24. He said, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, totally ignoring God, until the day that Noah entered the ark And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Life's going to go on like it's been going on for years and years and years, rebelling against God, but someday it's going to end just as seriously as it did in the days of the flood. Now we have one good note that concludes this section, verse 8. 
But, in contrast to all of this, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And how many times do we see in the Word of God where it looks like God's plan has has failed, God's plan can't move forward, but God always makes the way. And he does so through this man. Now, our passage falls between these two important notices of Noah. Back in chapter 5, verse 28, the hope of his father Lamech was reflected in his naming of Noah. You remember that? You remember that? His hope was uh, one of comfort and rest from painful labor and toil. And he hoped that would come through his son. Maybe he'll be that Messiah. And it's somewhat strange, but, but refreshing, that in the midst of God's pain and suffering over man's sin, he's comforted by Noah. There's yet one family left. Noah found grace or favor in God's eyes. And we see that like his forefather Enoch, Noah also walked with God. We'll get to that next time. So faith and mercy again meet together to save the day. Now we back up again to verse 3. We also see God's grace there because there seems to be, he's stating that there's going to be a time period before the axe falls, so to speak. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Now, some believe that that's a reference to the shortening of the human lifespan because of all this sinful rebellion going on. But this seems unlikely since we don't see it develop in the future as a norm of the length of man's life. It more likely refers to a time span of 120 years where God will, will continue to allow things to go forward in his grace, in his long suffering, but then the judgment will come. So they will have time to hear and repent at the preaching of Noah, who the New Testament says was the preacher of righteousness. They'll still have an opportunity to turn But we all know the outcome. So we see once again that the only reprieve from human rebellion and God's just retribution is faith through grace. In spite of our persistent rebellion, our covetousness, our desire to make our own choices, good or bad, uh, instead of choosing God's way, uh, going our way, uncaring of how what we do might affect others, hardly if ever thinking about God at all, God is still gracious to us. He sent the Savior into the world to save us from all this. Jesus took our rebellion, our sin, and God's retribution against it upon himself. And we have to recognize our own depravity. That's a a tough bone for us to to, uh, chew on. And most people won't do it. They won't see themselves as they really are. As lost, selfish sinners before a just God, they want to make excuses for their sin. 
But we have to recognize that sinfulness, our helplessness, our, our inability to save ourselves and turn to the Lord's grace in faith, believing that that is what will save us, the work of Christ. And by that faith, what do we do? We fall in line with the godly men who did walk with God in faith, such as Enoch and Noah. And once we make that choice, we no longer have to rebel against God's good boundaries, but experience the joy and comfort that comes from living within them. So we learn a lot from this passage. We learn what we're really like, although we don't like what we see. And we learn that even in the midst of wrath, God gives periods of grace and we need to do something in that period. We need to choose to walk with him, to follow him, to come to him on his terms. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning for the truth of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that it tells us what we are deep down inside. We pray, Lord, you help, to accept, help us to accept the truth of your word, that we're lost and helpless sinners, and that we can go far down that road in the wrong direction. But Lord, you sent Christ into the world to save us from that, to turn us to yourself, to help us to walk with you through life. So Lord, help us to be um, men and women of faith, trusting and depending upon your grace for our salvation and our daily walk with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.